0: Well, good evening, friends, family, strangers, whoever you may be. My name is Matt Moberg, and I'm one of the pastors here at the table, and we are so grateful that you are choosing to uh, put Dennis Rodman and his documentary to the side just for a little bit and spend this time with us. Thank you for saying yes. We are right now in the midst of a series called Shining Like the Sun. This is, in fact, week four of said series, which means that this is the fourth practice that we are inviting you into. Tonight's practice is the practice of rhythm. Now, according to the best-selling author of said practice, Stephen LeBron Weens, in his book, Shine Like the Sun, he sets out to pull us into the practice of rhythm by explaining how practicing the practice of rhythm is learning how to hear and play my part in the song that the universe is singing. I mean, do you really need any further elaboration or can we just move on and get back to Dennis? How do we best understand what it is that Steve's asking that we undertake? Well, if you'd be so kind, would you go back with me to the days of your Back to July twenty third, two thousand nineteen, when Donald J. Trump took a trip across the country to show up at the Turning Point USA Teen Summit, where there he was going to present a speech and energize and encourage the young mega boys and girls in the land. And I think he did it. I think it went really well. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't personally there, but I know that um, Debbie Manning was, and she sat in the front row, and she came back and talked literally for probably three weeks about how it was the first time she ever scene. What was fascinating about this moment though is that in the speech in the middle of the summit Donald Trump is so fixated on the crowd that is before him that he is completely oblivious to what had happened behind him. Behind him where we expected to find the presidential symbol, the seal, the insignia of the presidential office, we instead found this and this is not that. Where we expected to find an eagle with one head as most eagles tend to have we instead found this eagle with two heads as no other eagles really have that is except for the eagle that is front and center on the russian coat of arms where we expected to find 13 arrows in one of the eagle's hands we instead find his claw clenching a bunch of golf clubs and then in the other hand where we expected the eagle to be grasping an olive branch we instead see the eagle holding a wad of Benjamins. Straight cash, homie. Just you wait, that's that's not all. Above the eagle's head, where we expected to find the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, we instead found a Spanish phrase, 45 es un tutierre, which means 45 is a puppet. Now what was, was crazy about this moment is that this was all happening behind the president as he was speaking to the people who were in front of him and nobody in that room, in that moment, noticed. And, and to be honest, I don't think I would have picked up on it either because these two symbols look very similar even though they are saying things that are very different. The The presidential seal sets out to make this statement of authority but this seal here subverts that statement. Well, what is going on here? Well in the advertising world, which admittedly I know very little about. This is known as the work of bricolage, which is a French term that means uh, tinkering. It is it is taking something that that is and creating something new outside of it. And so this is why you pull pictures off of Pinterest to turn that nasty old mailbox that's been sitting out on your deck for all these years into now a shiny new toolbox. You took something that was, that was and you created something that now is. You pulled from a material, you tinkered with it, and now we have something brand new. And so sometimes artists practice bricolage to create new decor, but sometimes artists practice bricolage to cultivate some sort of disruption. The point of the bricolage is not replication. It's not trying to say what's already been said. It's not trying to do what's already been done. The point of bricolage is not replication. It's revelation. It's trying to go where the story has yet to actually go. Break Lodge is not trying to be an echo. It's trying to remember that you are a voice. And so you will sing the human song, but you will not sacrifice your holy solo. It is learning how to drive on the highway without forgetting where it's your turn to detour. Which, not to get in your grill, but have you forgotten where it's your turn to detour? Have you spent so much of your life learning how to get loud with this human song while remaining quiet with your own holy solo? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but one of the most tragic pieces that I have seen embedded inside of nearly every human being that I've ever met is that we have this tendency to see our own lives as a story while simultaneously insisting on another person's plot. I mean, I know that Job said that naked we come from the womb and at some point naked we will leave, but that won't stop us from trying on 10,000 different outfits until we find something that makes us feel like me. We don't trust that there is something in us that already is. And I don't, I don't say this to cast any shade. I mean, this, is, um, this isn't this is new. This has always been here. In fact, you can actually see it at the beginning of the scriptural story. We talked about this, this story a little bit earlier in the year, but you'll recall how despite God's calling on the Israelites to be a different kind of tribe, a new kind of tribe that exists solely for the purpose of lifting up and loving the other tribes nearby, they eventually got tired of that calling and started itching for a king instead. They got tired of their narrow particular path and they opted for a wider one instead. One that would go up and to the right and not down and deep within. And so one day they go to Samuel, who is kind of like the pastor of the land and, and thus like the politician that calls the shots, him and his boys. And they say, y- you guys, you did good, but, but uh, we do not we're tired of you. It's time for a break. It's not you, it's me, we need to break. Now, appoint a king to lead us. Why? Because all the other nations have one. You can hear inside of their story, a little bit of your story and my story in that reminder of when we first learned that there was a difference between us and them, us and that, us and her, us and him and we learn to downplay our distinctives in order that we may upgrade our conformity because we found out at some point that it would be better just to be accepted than it would to be authentic. It would be better if we could find a way that we could get some honor without ever actually having to get honest. And, and to make things a little bit more complicated even for them, for them when they ask for a king, this is not just about can we change up the policies in the land. This is about can we get some new power from going into other lands. When they are asking for a king, they are asking for a conquest. They are asking for a, a pathway forward where they could win wars like the neighbors down the road are winning wars so we could grow in power like the Greeks down the road are growing in power. Can we be bigger and better like everyone around us seems to be getting bigger and better. And then you fast forward eight chapters and, and they're in a war. They're right there in the thick of it, in, in the atrocity and the hardship and everything that is that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with a war. But also in the midst of that, in the telling of this story that would shape the collective memory of Israel, Samuel does something beautiful because Samuel inserts a little bricolage. Have you noticed that? When you read 1 Samuel 16, 17, 18, did you notice the bricolage that was filling up the background? My hunch is probably not because the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, can be hard for us to really engage deeply with. I mean if you think about the writers and the things that we read today, Jewish writers of the Hebrew Bible, they're not exactly our western cup of tea. The Jewish writers of the Hebrew Bible, they tend to be more about set design and Lighting and not as much about character development and action and drama and and the turmoil Which is why when you read the Old Testament oftentimes the wars and battles are served up like bullet points Whereas the genealogies and geographies go on and on and on and so just because of who we are and how we were raised We are less inclined to sit down and get sucked into a Hebrew story But tell me a story from the Greeks and I promise you I'll lean in and listen. Because the Greeks wrote stories like the ones we want to read. The Greeks had character development. They had drama. They had action. They had what is he doing there? Where is he going next? What will they do when? The Greeks had it all. In fact, at the time when Samuel first started writing, the Greeks had already written the stories of the world. And in their stories, there was one particular story that kind of shaped everybody else's story. There was one story that was the chief story that everybody kind of knew. This is, of course, Homer's Iliad. The Iliad is an account of many different things. But one of the main features of the Iliad is the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, and specifically the way that the warring went down. They would have these contests of Champions why you ask that's a great question. I really appreciate you asking if you study the ancient world and the wars that happened inside of them You would quickly find out that war was a very dangerous thing now. I know duh Matt Okay, we we get that war is dangerous But hear me out if you were a soldier in an ancient war and you were sprinting full steam ahead towards the opposing army And you tripped on a rock in the middle of the field and it broke your foot you might die before a sword is even drawn there were no doctors, there were no nurses, there was no medical teams that would rush and carry you off. There was no, you know, light that you could put underneath your skin to get rid of diseases. And so to try and preserve as many lives as possible, what armies would do is that they would have these one-on-one battles with winner taking all. You throw out your best and beefiest guy, we'll do the same. Whoever wins takes all. You become our slaves, we take your things, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. This is called the Contest of Champions, and it was so popular in the ancient world that it was actually a literary genre in and of itself. And in this genre, there were thousands of different stories of all these these contests, these epic battles, these one-on-one duels. But there was one story that was the chief story of all the stories, and that was the story of Hector's one-on-one battle with Achilles. Hector, who was a man, was the greatest warrior of all of the men, greatest warrior for sure from Troy. He squares off with Achilles, who is half God, half man, an incredible warrior, and even has a cell phone. This is a story that we're familiar with. We've made movies out of stories like this. We know this story. We love this story because we love how the Greeks wrote. And we struggle with these Hebrew stories because they weren't written like the Greeks wrote. Except for that one time, when that one story was in 1 Samuel 16, we don't get this battle story that is served up like a bullet point. We get a Hebrew writer writing like a Greek would have wrote. We get 58 verses to tell one story, and it is filled with character development, drama, action, build-up, suspense. What's he doing here? Everything, all of the above. Check, check, check. It's a Greek story written by a Hebrew writer, and to make it even more interesting, it doesn't even sound like it's an original. In 1 Samuel 17, we have this contest of champions where you have the Philistines on one side, you have the Israelites with King Saul on the other side, and they're about to come to blows. The scripture reads that when the Philistines set out to end this thing once and for all, they called on their baddest guy that they had, the big beefy Goliath of Gath. And Samuel writes this, a champion of the Philistine forces stepped forward. His name was Goliath of Gath and he was six cubits and a span tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a breastplate of scale armor, a bronze breastplate weighing 5,000 shekels. That's super interesting to me because when Homer sets out to describe what Hector looks like, Homer says that Hector is known as towering Hector by his enemies and as Hector of the bronze helmet by his peers. And the parallels don't stop there. When Hector goes out to pick his fight with the half god half man Achilles, Homer writes that there was a hushed silence that fell through all the Achaean ranks, ashamed to refuse and also afraid to take up his challenge. When Goliath shouted out at the Israelites they seemed to be under the same passive predicament. As the text says the Israelites were all dismayed and terror-stricken. And so you have these two different fighters who are being described, as wearing similar armor, a description, mind you, that has no parallel anywhere else in scripture. And then they both start trash talking from the middle of the field to the other side where no bodies are willing to budge. Nobody wanted to mess with Goliath and nobody wanted to mess with Hector. And the thing actually continues to unravel, but I'll stop there for the sake of time. And I know Dennis needs us. But the thing that I wanna make a point and make sure that we are seeing here is that Samuel is writing this story about Goliath, but Samuel is thinking as he does about Hector. There is the Homeric embedded inside of the Abrahamic. This is starting to smell like bricolage. And so if this story is just like that story, our eyes now need to look to see where is this story going to stray? Where is the detour, the off-ramp going to be chosen? And here's where it is. In all these epics, these battles, these contests of champions, we are used to seeing One army throw out Shaquille O'Neal to fight and the other army to respond with Dwayne Johnson, and we expect the beefiest and the baddest boys to come blow to blow. And so if you are a part of the Israeli tribe, then this is like revving your engine. You are getting pumped up, you are excited, you can't wait to see what's next, because if big bad boy Goliath of Gath is being cast as the Hector, then that means that Achilles is coming from our camp. But then comes the moment when the story starts to stray and instead of Sly Stallone climbing out from the tent next door or Mr. T or Bill Lambeer or Steve Manning, we instead get this little bitty boy named David. This prepubescent little boy with a pitchy voice and a few pimples on his forehead who says, I'll, I'll happily fight if none of the older men would like to. David is there to provide his brothers with some food, and yet now David is here preparing to fight. And if I am a Jewish person reading this story at that time, I am livid right now with Samuel because, Samuel, you're doing it wrong. I understand you're Hebrew. You're not Greek. I get why you might have some errors in your ways, but this is not how the story is supposed to go. And Samuel would say, you're absolutely right because... It's not our story. That's their story. And as long as we continue to insist on their plot instead of our path, we will never become who we were born to be. And then to really drive home the point that Samuel is trying to make, he says, if you think this is bad just wait because little boy wonder is going to go out and he is going to fight the giants in front of all the grown-ups back home. And when he goes, he won't be wearing any armor. No, I know you all made that high and mighty walk to Samuel's office, knocked on his door and said, cough up a king. We want a king just like the ones down the road, just like the Hectors in the other land. We want a leader like that. But we're going to take David. We're going to say yes to his ask to fight. We're going to offer him some king armor. And not just any armor, bronze armor, the kind that Hector himself would wear. He's going to try it on, but he's not going to keep it on. He's going to take that off. He's going to take off the king's armor in hopes that you will take off your neighbor's story. And then as if the literature couldn't get any better, Samuel says that David takes off Saul's armor and he picks up his shepherd's staff. The shepherd's staff is not just a tool for herding sheep. The shepherd's staff is, is what you would use to tell your story, to remember your story. On a shepherd's staff, there was different marks of significant climactic moments in your life. And so in many ways, if you read that text, it could almost be read as David took off Saul. And then once again, David picked up David. Who are you putting on that it is time you set back down? Whose armor are you wearing tonight that's actually keeping you from winning in your day tomorrow? because I know it's somebody's. One of the things I love about how Samuel writes this text is that Samuel doesn't say that David straight up declines Saul's armor. Samuel says that David tries on Saul's armor and then declines Saul's armor, and I love that because I think that's actually how it works. I think we all sort of covered our, I mean, I even think about Jesus when Jesus says that if you want to find your life, you need to lose your life, and I think he's telling the truth, but I also would say that you cannot lay down and lose a life that you've yet to fully build. And so what we do is that we do this Build-A-Bear approach with our lives where we take his sense of humor, her confidence, her wisdom, his Rico Suave nature, whatever it may be, we kind of make this mosaic image of everybody else's bronze outfits. But at some point we realize I am waddling and I should be walking. This doesn't fit me. Just because somebody hands me their armor does not mean I have to put it on. This doesn't fit me. And so now I have to decide, am I going to stay with my story and keep coloring inside of the lines, or am I going to allow the bricolage to happen and allow my story to start when it finally starts to stray? Maybe the question here is, what would you really be doing if you weren't afraid? A couple minutes ago, we just got done with our Timberwolves uh, team chapel, and this week we had a guest speaker come through, and his name was Devon Franklin, and he is... He was incredible, first of all, but he's a movie producer, he's a best-selling author, internationally celebrated speaker. Uh, It's gonna be a tough gig to follow up next week. He came through tonight and he said a lot of beautiful, wonderful things, but one of the things that he said that I know for me is going to stick is he said that when I first went out to Hollywood, I didn't seem to have the temptations that a lot of other people had. I wasn't like tempted to cheat on my girlfriend, nor was I tempted to put drugs in my body. My greatest temptation was my ambition. I wanted so badly to be great at what I was doing that I was tempted to compromise on the way that God wanted to do it. You hear what he's saying? I wanted so badly to be great, to stand out, to make a difference, build myself a name, that I was tempted to go down the street to Samuel's office and demand a king and forfeit my calling. I wanted so badly to be a winner that I was tempted to reach for Saul's armor, even if it meant I would wobble and not walk the rest of the days of my life. But I'm so glad that I strayed and said, I am so grateful that the Spirit calls each of us not to be carbon copies of our neighbors next doors, but to be mavericks who go our own paved path. David goes out into the field. As himself with this duct tape amateur hour little slingshot, but he shows up as he is to sing this solo and he defeats not just Goliath but the ridiculousness of all of the Israelites songs. His solo, his playing his part that only he could play, he steps out into that field and he sings this solo that exposes this song, the one that says that we can only do what we need to do if we do it like they're already doing it. And so in this story, you have these people that go to their priest and they ask their God, give us some kind of Rambo-like warrior. And when God provides an answer that looks more like a young boy, it is as if God is saying to them, why would I ever give you what you want if it's only going to keep you from who you are? Why would I ever teach you their song if it's only going to make you sacrifice your solo? This story says that if you want to be like everybody around you, if you want to fight like they fight and wear the armor that they wear, you will waddle and you will not win. Victory will not come unless we come as we are. The reality is that there are people out there who are as smart as you, as good looking as you, as excited, as passionate, as skilled, as talented. The only thing that separates you from them is that you're you. As Rob Bell writes in one of his books, he says that nobody has tried you before. What if you did though? There's a lady that is named Martha Graham who was this renowned dancer and choreographer. She has been said to be to dance what Picasso was to art, what Jordan was to basketball. In her biography Martha, the life and work of Martha Graham. Graham has this quote in there that that I think speaks to our openness to the stray. She says this, there is a vitality A life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It's not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. One of the darkest things that I think the church has ever done, and one of the things that I don't think we've talked about nearly enough, is that we have taught people to denounce their deepest desires. And somehow that's tangled up in something called the flesh. And that means that if it feels good, it probably isn't. But I really want to be clear about this because I think it's so important. Your deepest desire, the thing behind the thing for you, it is your greatest gift. Following that gift is your gift to yourself, and the outcome of that gift, well, that's the gift that you give to the world. When you tap into that desire and you start to unpack that gift, you are unpacking something that is going to bring you joy and fullness and life, and it's going to, by its very nature, offer the same to others. And so to live anything less than your purpose, to continue to insist on another person's plot, to refuse to stray, to make that detour, to sacrifice your solo. That would be to deprive the world of the gift that was only intended to come through you. Don't deprive us of that gift. We can only be who we are called to be if you are the person you were created to become. What I love about how Steve sets up this chapter is he talks about jazz and how the solos in a jazz performance, they are autobiographical. And it reminds me of this quote that Louis Armstrong once said, where he says, You blows who you is. You blows who you is. And so how about you go on and do just that? We'll all keep on singing the human song, but we cannot wait to hear your holy solo. See you next week, friends.